0: All right, I invite you now to take out your Bibles and you can turn to John chapter 10. John 10, starting in verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, "John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true." And many believed in him there. Since the reading of God's holy and inspired word, you may be seated.
1: Let's pray to open. Heavenly Father, as we consider. Your scriptures today lord we ask for your help Uh, your inspired word must be spiritually discerned and so we ask that your holy spirit would be opening our eyes enlightening our 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 eyes sorry and um, softening our hearts um, to receive your truths lord may everything i say be to the edification of your people may anything unnecessary fall away Uh, by your grace lord may those who have not previously heard and understood and believe the gospel do so today that your word would bear fruit as you intend in christ's name we pray Amen. All right, so we are continuing our way through the Gospel of John this morning uh, with a final section of chapter 10. If you recall, in the last couple of sermons in this series, Pastor Riley has been teaching on some of the core Christian doctrines that have come through in Christ's various dialogues with the Jews. We have learned about our total depravity and inability to save ourselves. Last week, we learned about God's sovereign election of his people, his sheep, and then about God's preservation of those sheep. As we get into today's passage, these and other doctrines will be further cemented for us, as we will see the unbelieving Jews growing increasingly hostile towards Christ. We will see spiritual blindness and hatred towards God by those who claim to be his people. And then on the flip side, we're going to see true, regenerate believers continuing to come to Christ and following him. But the primary doctrine we'll discuss today, and the one most germane to our passage, is the doctrine of Christ's deity, his divinity. Our text this morning begins with this statement by Christ, which would have punctuated last week's sermon just as well as it sets the stage for today's sermon. Verse 30, Jesus' claim of divinity, I and the Father are one. He and the Father are one. Now let's start with a point of caution here. We are not to take this one verse to be, on its own, a summary doctrinal statement. We must not read it without considering everything else Scripture teaches on the relationship of the Father and Son, and the distinctions between the two. This passage does not mean that Jesus and the Father are the same person. Some groups believing this have fallen into a doctrinal error called modalism, which holds that Jesus was merely a manifestation of God, uh, like he was more or less a suit that, God's put on, that God puts on for certain occasions. Uh, this would be kind of like saying that an earthly son is his father, his biological father. Um, your son may be a spitting image of you, but you are still two distinct people, no matter how similar you are. And the same holds true for Jesus and his earthly, sorry, his heavenly father. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of his Father's glory, Hebrews 1 verse 3. But we can conclude by looking at scripture as a whole that Christ and the Father, although both God, are still two distinct persons. We have already affirmed this morning many scriptural truths together from the Apostles' Creed uh, regarding the nature and the work of Christ. And we would also affirm with the historic Nicene Creed Uh, which was written to refute the error of modalism, Uh, the Nicene Creed states that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And so Jesus and the Father are of the same essence. They are of one nature, but they are two distinct persons. In verse 30, Jesus is saying that he is one in purpose with the Father. They are one in mission, one in will. They are one in power. As God's people, Christ's unity with the Father is of great comfort to us. Earlier in verse 29, when Jesus said, nothing can snatch his sheep from his hand, it is because he keeps them safe with his omnipotent strength. Christ is our faithful vigilant and tireless shepherd he who watches over us will neither slumber nor sleep under his care no sheep will get out and no enemy will get in and snatch one away jesus is able to hold us safe because he and the father are united in the divine work of redemption and though not mentioned in our text this morning i would also remind us of the third person of the godhead the holy spirit The Holy Spirit and the Father are also one, one in essence, one in purpose and in mission. The Spirit, as Jesus taught Nicodemus, is like the wind, blowing wherever it will, wherever God wills it. The Spirit regenerates the elect, each in God's timing. He opens blind eyes and grants new hearts. The indwelling Spirit gives believers the desire to please God and works progressive sanctification in our lives. Like Christ, the Holy Spirit is one in essence and substance with the Father. And though each member of the Trinity has a different function in salvation, they are united in the mission. Father, Son, and Spirit, three and yet one, working as a unit to get things done. And so the preservation of the saints is a cooperative act between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are safe in the hand of our triune God. But this morning, let us consider further what I believe to be the primary point of our passage, and that is the deity of Christ. That though he is truly man, he is also truly God. The Pharisees are not questioning the fact that Jesus is a man. He's standing there before him. What they cannot accept, however, is the fact that he is God. And that's something I would like for all of us to be settled in and encouraged by today. If you remember, the theme of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing in him, people may have eternal life. The book opens with John's declaration of Christ's eternality and his deity. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God. And as we've continued through his gospel, we've seen John continuing to build the case for Christ's divinity. Chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 28, the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is followed by Jesus's baptism, an an apologetic for the Trinity, Uh, in which the Father spoke to Jesus and the Holy Spirit came down to rest upon him as a heavenly endorsement that Jesus was sent by the Father and was pleasing to him. All three persons of the Godhead functioning separately and yet together. And then, as we've been working our way through John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus' own claims of deity. In chapter 5, we read that the Father sent him. Jesus says this, the Father sent him and that he has come in the Father's name. In chapter 6, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, a term that is used in Daniel 7 for the one who will come from heaven and receive an everlasting kingdom. And after miraculously feeding the multitudes with bread and fish, Jesus explains that he is the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of the manna that came down from God in the wilderness. Indeed, all roads in the Bible lead to Jesus Christ. All scripture points to him. And in just the previous three or so chapters, um, 7, 8, and 9, Jesus has referred to himself as the light of the world, not of this world, as the great I am, the door to salvation, the good shepherd, and the Christ. So we have the Father's endorsement. We have Christ's own recognition of his sonship. And then we have his works, to which he refers in our passage today, verse 32. Jesus said to them, somewhat sarcastically, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So let us consider for a a moment here just a few of the good works from the Father, a few of of the many messianic prophecies that Christ had already fulfilled by this point during his time on earth. Prophecies that the Pharisees could have and should have been well acquainted with. We can start with the prophecy that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. This is shown to us in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wouldn't you know it, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David through Joseph, as detailed in Matthew chapter one. It was also prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, in Micah chapter five. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, you, sorry, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people Israel. And we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Luke 2. We know that he was born of a virgin, as Isaiah 7, 14 foretold. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, his, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And this was fulfilled in Jesus. It was prophesied in Psalm 72 that kings would bring him tribute. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring, bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And this was fulfilled in part when the wise men brought him gifts as an infant. And it's to be fulfilled in its entirety when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And here's another prophecy that the Pharisees stumbled over, that Jesus referred to himself as God's son. Well, God did this too in Psalm 2 verse 7, which reads, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as we've already seen, this was fulfilled at Jesus' baptism, with the Father speaking from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Continuing on with some prophecies, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected by his brothers. Psalm 68, sorry, Psalm 69, verse 8. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Well, early on, Jesus' earthly brothers and and his kinsmen especially did not receive him. Case in point, today's passage with the Pharisees' refusal to believe. And then Psalm 69, verse 9 that zeal for the Father's house would consume him. We know this was fulfilled at Jesus' cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. It was prophesied that the Messiah would minister in Galilee, Isaiah verse 9, that he would speak in parables. Psalm 78, it was prophesied that the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, and the blind would see. That was in Isaiah 35, all of which all of which has been fulfilled by Christ up until this point already, and it's been recorded in the gospel for us, and it was known by the Pharisees. Jesus has done nothing but provide evidence for his deity since his birth. And thanks to the meticulous record-keeping of the Jews, The Pharisees would have been able to verify uh, the birth records and genealogy at any time. Um, Had they not been willfully blind to the evidence, they could have systematically itemized every detail of his life, every prophecy already fulfilled, and they could have anticipated the ones still to come in his um, death, resurrection, and reign. But they were so blinded to the truth and hard of heart that they didn't fairly investigate his claims and the prophecies that he fulfilled. And so they would not understand, they would not believe, that Jesus was eternal and that he was God. And so according to the law, of which the Pharisees were so self-proclaimed experts, they had one recourse, which was to put Jesus to death. So yeah, the the Pharisees were experts in the law. They were supposed to be the leaders of Israel in this regard. uh, And they were experts in knowing what it said, if not applying it justly. They were well-versed in the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible. They would have recited uh, probably daily the Shema, which we also read from Deuteronomy 6 this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The problem was that their uninspired interpretation of that verse left no room for another member of the Godhead. They also knew that scripture makes it very clear that God does not share his glory and that worship of anything or anyone other than him is strictly forbidden. The first three of the Ten Commandments have to do with this. The first commandment, you shall have no gods, no other gods before me. And the second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So in the blind eyes of the Pharisees, for Jesus to hold himself out to be God, that's the first commandment, in the flesh, that's a created being, a second commandment violation, and use his name, Vainly in their minds, that's a third commandment violation. It It was a big problem. Violating these laws came with a severe penalty, which was death. And we can read about how this penalty was to be applied. If you want to turn there, it's in Leviticus 24. You can turn there, starting in verse 10. an instance of case law here, law applied.
0: This
1: is Leviticus twenty-four, ten to 16. Now an, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So here we have a situation. Um, we don't know the exact um, circumstances here, but somebody um, told a lie about God, blasphemed him, cursed him, and uh, even, even being a, a sojourner, he was held to account. He was put to death So this case law states that anyone who curses God or blasphemes him must bear the consequences of his sin. They must be brought outside of the camp and put to death. And the Pharisees have been eager to carry out this sentence with Jesus for some time. Uh, They are settled in their judgment. Um, They're now only looking for the opportunity. This is now the fourth account in the book of John where they have tried to lay hands on him with his execution in mind. You can read there, they were picking up stones again to stone him. Because in their darkened minds, Jesus was a mere man uh, making himself out to be God. Do we see the irony here? The Jews had it backwards. It was not a case of a man making himself to be God. It was God who had made himself man. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And so, Jesus does not submit to their judgment. Instead, he interjects with an interesting Old Testament citation, and one that's going to require a bit of work on our part this morning. Jesus answers them in verses 34 to 36, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God? Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. This is small g. And this, uh, the citation here is in reference to Psalm 82. Let's turn there for a moment uh, to see what Jesus is referring to. Psalm 82. Starting in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. Notice God is large G. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Notice that one is a small G. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, large G, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So. can see this can get a little bit complicated in our our passage here. We need to dig into it a little bit because in in the Hebrew language, the word God translated with a large G and the one translated with a small G are the same Hebrew word, Elohim. Uh, You see it in verse 1 and again in verses 6 and 8 there. The translation difference is based on the context of the verse. Um, So in the case of Psalm 82, we have the Lord God standing in judgment of those who are speaking on his behalf. Because they were ruling in God's name, they were considered to be gods, small g. Uh, We saw the same situation uh, in our opening passage this morning uh, as well, Psalm 97, uh, where the word was translated uh, to either refer to a false idol, uh, a created god, or as those who vainly worship those created gods. Um, As is the case in Psalm 82, it refers to a powerful person uh, who is being rebuked and humbled and called to bow down, and worship the one true God, large G. So this stuff can and make things a, a little difficult to work through, but um, I think it helps if we think about it in the English language. We still do this from time to time. Um, at least we, we did so more historically uh, with titles of nobility and that sort of thing. Uh, we still have landlords, right? We still have kings and princes. We have counselors. But we have only one Lord, capital L. We have only one true king. We have one prince of peace, one Wonderful counselor. But we can understand how people in positions of earthly power or influence can hold a title, in a small g kind of way. A title that only God himself is worthy of, ultimately. But look what is happening in this prophetic psalm that Jesus has chosen to cite to the Pharisees. God is coming to his people, to the wicked rulers. He accuses them of judging unjustly of withholding mercy and compassion. He calls them blind and says they are without understanding. Psalm 82 was being fulfilled in the hearing of the Pharisees that day. The only appropriate response would have been for them to repent, um, to fall on their knees and to learn at the feet of Jesus, but the Pharisees would not do that. They had conveniently set aside Psalm 82, some of God's inspired word, in order to pass unrighteous judgment on Christ. I found it interesting. If you notice in verse 35, there's just a small phrase tucked into there, almost like a footnote for this New Testament occasion. It says, Scripture cannot be broken. That's what Christ says, Scripture cannot be broken. And the Pharisees, who were in the habit of playing one scripture against another and leaving out commandments they didn't like, they were now being held to account by Jesus using the law that they claim to love. Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be set aside. It cannot be altered or nullified. Matthew 7, Jesus says, not one iota or dot, or if you're a King James person, not one jot or tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We know what the Apostle Paul says about Scripture. It is all breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And We ought to share the same view of Scripture as the Apostle Paul did and as Jesus does. For those of us who would prefer to have certain verses stricken from the Bible because they're hard to understand or more likely hard to obey, this correction is for us. Scripture cannot be broken. If there's something in Scripture that rubs us the wrong way, what is done is reveal pride in us. What we need to do is humbly come to that passage and ask God to help us understand it and to obey it. Scripture is infallible. We are not. And it is not Scripture that needs changing. It is us. Back to John 10, Jesus says to them, even you who are earthly, who are sinners, allow for yourselves to be called gods. And yet here I am, the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, and essentially Jesus is saying, you're denying me that title. It's bad enough that you will not believe my words, but you will not judge rightly the works that I have done. If you remember, the Pharisees had accused Jesus earlier of using demonic power to perform his miracles. They have shown themselves incapable of judging rightly. And now they were sitting in judgment over the one true judge. There's another title for us. There's but one judge with a capital J. And it was Jesus who had now passed judgment over them. As Psalm 82 foretold, these wicked Pharisees in their spiritual blindness would fall like any other man. It was they who were in sin and were therefore subject to the death penalty. They had been weighed. And found wanting by Christ but instead of repenting they again angrily sought to arrest him this is in verse 39 but this was not the time the place or the way that Christ would give himself up and so he supernaturally escaped from their hands yet again he is in the habit of doing that and this would be the last time that Jesus would engage the Pharisees in any apologetic dialogue no more fielding disingenuous questions or countering endless arguments, no more avoiding traps, verbal or otherwise, Jesus would now shake the dust off his feet and leave the Pharisees behind. For anyone here who thinks it a light thing to sit in judgment against God or his word, for anyone here who is waiting to repent because they want more evidence or a more convincing argument, for anyone who is waiting to come to Christ because they think they'll have time later. Friend, hear me today, do not presume upon God's patience. Do not think you have tomorrow to repent, you might not. God can and does withdraw himself from those who repeatedly harden themselves towards him. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not be like the wicked Pharisees for whom no sign was miraculous enough and no words convincing enough. Trust in Christ today. Believe what he said. Believe what he did. Trust that he can and will deliver you from sin, from death and eternal punishment. He is the light of the world. He is the door by which we must come to the Father. He is the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. Do not wait for a more opportune time to come to Christ. There may not be one. And as Christ finishes in judgment with the Pharisees, we move on to verse 40. We are now about three months away from Christ's triumphal entry and his crucifixion, where Christ would willingly give himself up, and this intervening time would be spent primarily with his disciples and his followers. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in there. Here I think we have a wonderful contrast to the previous section. Whereas the Pharisees could never be satisfied to the point of belief, here are followers of Jesus who are streaming to him, many coming to him on the basis of what they heard from John the Baptist, perhaps years ago. John's ministry had endured in spite of his martyrdom, in spite of his being executed for righteousness' sake. Many people believed, and more were coming to faith through the witness of John's life and death. For these Christians effectually called, irresistibly drawn, and sovereignly saved, no further miracles were necessary to convince them. John's ministry provided no sign, other than the fact that John himself was a sign, the spirit of Elijah, the voice crying in the wilderness. John's prophetic word was received by these believers as authoritative. And his message was simple. Turn from your sins and believe. The Messiah has come. The kingdom is at hand. There were no lengthy arguments about the law, no stumbling over ceremonial washings or foods or circumcision. Just repent, believe, and be baptized for the remissions of sins. Brothers and sisters, we too are those who have come to faith without signs. None of us here can claim to have seen Jesus face to face. At least I don't think any of us would want to claim that. Not many of us have witnessed outward miracles that I'm aware of. We have believed second-hand, as it were, that Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. We've believed through the inspired, infallible scriptures, the testimony of the apostles, and faithful teachers since. We have seen Christ's glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, but we have seen it not with our physical eyes, but with spiritual sight, granted to us by the Holy Spirit. Blessed are they who believe because they have seen, but equally blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And yet we long for that day when our faith will be made sight, when Christ comes again in glory to receive his own to himself and to cast away forever those who deny him. And so let us be satisfied to believe and hold to the authoritative word of God. Our scripture will not pass away. It will not be changed. Let us not demand signs or wonders in order to believe that Christ is who he says he is. The evidence is sufficient. Let us follow our sovereign Lord who rules his people not unjustly and blindly like the Pharisees did, but with perfect righteousness and wisdom and compassion. Let us live in such a way that our works would testify to our union with Christ, that the world would see that just as he is one with the Father, we too are one with them, and that seeing, they may believe. And let us entrust ourselves fully, body, soul, and spirit, to our triune God. May his kingdom come on earth, with the nations streaming to him as his inheritance. Amen.